welcome to the final episode of Storycraft's second season. I'm Ben Hart. I'm the Managing Director of Fireside, a storytelling-led communication agency. And I'm joined for this episode by Fireside's Energy and Climate Lead, Alastair Perkins. Hi, Alastair. Thanks for having me on. So, this episode is us doing something a little bit different uh, it's a bit of a case study from Fireside's body of work. It's one of my favourite jobs that we've done working for Oxfam, developing a narrative for them around climate justice and their work in climate. Oxfam came to us with a problem which was that they are increasingly working in the climate space because climate has a big impact on poverty and third world development, but people were confused about why Oxfam was in the space and how dealing with climate is also helping people in developing countries protect themselves and live full and and good lives. And so, yeah, they came to us and, and said that they wanted not just a narrative but a research-informed narrative, which is something that we hadn't done before. And so Alistair and I worked on, first of all, developing up the research frame for this and then turning that into a narrative. Alistair, what's your takeaways from from this work? This was a fascinating project. We know that climate, particularly this year following the federal election, had a high-issue high salience. It, it shifted a lot of votes. It was a very persuasive issue, and it, it's one that is certainly on the map in a way that it hasn't been before. But we can't take that for granted, and we certainly saw that through this project. Yeah. So we got in, um, for the podcast, we got in ahead of where to research uh, Penny Burke, who's someone that we've collaborated before with at Fireside to help with the research component of this. And we also got in Nina Crawley, who's Oxfam's advocacy and campaigns lead who commissioned the work. And to me, it, it provides fascinating insights into how we should be speaking about climate, especially to broader groups. I think my feeling is, and this came out in our last episode with Claire O'Rourke, a bit, I guess I have a view that for too long when we've been speaking about climate, it's almost been a given that people will, will eventually come to the party just because of the seriousness of the problem and the existential threat that it presents to the world. But I think there's a growing realisation that the enormity of the of the task is actually probably, well, is almost certainly a negative in terms of trying to engage people because it's just too big and too overwhelming. So... You know, Nina came to us. She actually hadn't, couldn't find any research around how to speak to people about climate justice in a development space. So she wanted to hear from people about how they were going to respond to messaging and how um, a group like Oxfam could really engage people on concepts around climate justice and then shift them into action through amplifying messaging or or assisting with fundraising as well. Yeah, so I think the project showed we, we certainly couldn't take anything for granted. Um, we saw that people care about the climate. We've, we've got a growing evidence base that shows that climate is a, a, an important issue to a lot of people. Um, but the world has changed a little bit, even just throughout this year. We've seen cost of living pressures that were front of mind, even for some people that were very climate engaged. And interestingly, even for some, some climate engaged young people who I would have expected would have been certainly the kind of people that would, would get this um, from, the, from the outset and wouldn't need too much persuading. So 
Um, I think the project showed it's really critical that we find the most impactful ways to connect with new audiences and really influence them to take action. And I think the most exciting thing about this um, was there was one thing that really stood out, and that was that we can get these people to care about the issue if we tell them the right story. Okay, so uh, we might just jump straight into it. So Nina and Penny, welcome to Storycraft. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Ben. So Nina, for the uninitiated, can you just describe to us uh, what Oxfam Australia does and perhaps how it intersects with uh, climate change at the moment? Sure. So Oxfam Australia is an international development organisation. We've been operating in Australia for close to 70 years. Uh, So Oxfam's main mission is to, to tackle poverty and the inequality that causes it. So um, there's a very close link with climate change in there. Some of, uh, from the very beginning, Oxfam has been focused on hunger and ensuring that uh, people had enough to eat and that their livelihoods, livelihoods were protected. So we can see that climate change is a direct threat to that. How long would you say climate's been a real focus for Oxfam? It's become a growing focus. And uh, more recently, since 2020, internationally and domestically, we have accepted climate as one of the main pillars of our work. So we see that there are four key pillars or dimensions of inequality that Oxfam works on. Economics, gender justice, first people's justice and climate justice. Um, And so there's a, a very sharp focus for us on climate change. So it's not the thing, but it's one of the the main things. And it's probably something that that sits across those other three things as well, in a sense. Precisely. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah, they're all all intersectional and interrelated. Um, You know, these are big issues. These are um, issues that have political, social, um, economic and environmental aspects. And they're all contributing to inequality. And they're all, yeah, focus for Oxfam Australia in our work. So, so given it is such an important part of Oxfam's um, business and day-to-day operations now, um, I guess it's interesting that there's still been, not just amongst Oxfam but amongst other um, development organisations as well, there's been challenges around how to talk to people around how climate intersects with poverty and development and all those other kinds of issues. So... Um, when when you did decide to come to Fireside to to help with a climate justice narrative, what were some of the drivers for wanting to get that work done? I mean, your question partly answered that. It's very complicated. Um, the whole uh, topic of you know the causes, the solutions for climate change and inequality more generally, and I think that. You know, within a bubble, within a bubble of international development, people get used to speaking about problems in particular ways. So uh, we were really keen to get some help to understand where our audience was at and the best way to meet them so that they could really start to see those links, see those links between climate and economic justice and between climate and gender justice. I think also climate change is a really, as with a lot of Oxfam's work, it's a really protracted crisis. Um, you know, we've been speaking about it for a long time. It's something that's been in the community for a long time. So it's really worthwhile checking what do people understand? You know, are the messages that, that we've been using for some time working or not working? And has the community come along on the debate 
with us because I think at the moment we're racing ahead as a sector, thinking about concepts like climate justice, thinking about these new concepts like a loss and damage fund you would have seen was announced at COP, you know, really getting into the nitty-gritty of how we can help to address some of the power imbalances that cause climate change. But I'm not sure if the community is there with us yet, so we're going to have to do a bit of work to bring them up to that point. So can you just give us a, a, or paint a picture of us about how, what that looks like in terms of Oxfam attempting to speak to key audiences around climate and what, what kind of barriers do you encounter, what kind of misconceptions, misunderstandings um, when you try to tell a story about, about climate? I think it's varied. I think that there is still sections of our community who maybe question climate change. Um, and I suppose we're not too concerned with them, but they are there and, you know, in some ways we need to have a response to them. But I think there's a larger section um, of the community who doesn't understand um, how the system needs to change and are very focused on either individual responsibility or responsibility of individual countries. So one of the main barriers we face is when we might um, engage with supporters via social media or via email, we'll get responses asking about other, you know, whether other countries have made the same commitments or we'll get responses um, that focus on more individual choices, like they might question the number of children particular groups of people are having. So I think um, that's a real big barrier for us to, under for, to try to communicate that this is a systems-based problem this is about governments, corporations, systems that have been built up having um, an unequal amount of power and therefore being able to um, create laws, develop systems that benefit them at the risk of uh, harming or damaging other areas of the ecosystem. So, um, yeah, that, that's definitely a barrier for us to be able to explain that relationship in a meaningful and simple way that the general public would understand. So, in, in a more practical sense, does it does it impact on things like fundraising and media engagement and that kind of thing in terms of people just saying, "Well, you know, is an oxygen to do with poverty? What, what does that have to do with with climate?" Yeah, one hundred percent. I think um, not being an environmental organisation, um, it definitely has a direct impact. On fundraising, people when they donate to Oxfam have a particular idea about why they might do that, um, and climate change isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Um, from a media perspective, I think that um, one of the challenge we face is that this idea of climate justice, or um, you know, really tackling the systems that are, are leading to the climate crisis is somewhat niche at the moment. I think the debate is still very much around power generation, tech, technological changes. So, um, uh, yeah, so for us, one barrier is that from a media perspective, um, it isn't the main game when reporting on climate. Um, and, look, we would argue that we've really got to the point where these kinds of discussions are the main game. Like this discussion about global equity is what is driving, you know, negotiations at an international level. And if we can get these kinds of questions right, that's how we can come together as a global community to tackle the problem. 
not so much, you know, technical advances are great, but unless we're together and on the same page and working together, then we're not going to be able to implement them effectively. Mm. So, Nina, maybe before we go on, given that it is actually what we were build going, we were seeking to build a narrative around this concept of climate justice. Can you just explain to people what climate justice is? Yeah, climate justice is addressing the power imbalances that contribute and maintain the climate crisis. So it looks like individuals who are most affected by climate change, having the power and having a seat at the table to voice their concerns, um, and it looks like those who are the most responsible for causing the current crisis, taking up that responsibility either by changing their behaviour or financial compensation you know, various ways that they could take on that responsibility. And so when when you came to us looking to, to develop a narrative around climate justice, you were also very um, keen to ensure that it was tested with research. What what was what was driving that kind of need to have it validated like that? I think because I haven't I haven't come across any research. So I I I think Speaking about climate change is quite well resourced and we've seen some great leaps in the climate debate because of that research. I think we are, and we, I mean, as a collective movement tackling climate change uh, streets above where we were, say, a decade ago. Um, Climate justice as a concept is now very um, well understood within the sector and, um, you know, very important and something that, Many people are working towards, but I wasn't able to find any information on how the general public understood that. And I wanted to start having a base of research and understanding to start exploring some more technical concepts within the climate justice world that um, that we haven't started to address yet. You know, um, ideas like climate, fi- you know, concepts like climate finance, concepts like um, loss and damage that are new to the Australian landscape, but I hope within a few years' time will be as well understood as, you know, emissions reduction. Um, and so did you have any gut feel or predictions before you went into that research process about what it might, what it might show? Yes, I – so I think the main thing um, I could call out that was perhaps challenged – um, you know, we set up these research groups and, and, you know, we decided to focus on people who were connected to Oxfam as supporters or connected to the climate movement or climate change more generally. And what we found was that there was just generally not an understanding. And to my mind, I was thinking, where are all the people who attended the climate march? Like, where are all our climate supporters? Like, surely those people are out there. And once I had the hard data in front of me, I sort of took a breath and realised, oh, there's only, you know, 100,000 of them at the most. This is not a huge cohort. And that's when I understood, okay, that's the core. That's this very small group of people who do understand the problem. Mm. The group of people who don't understand it are so much bigger than I had first anticipated. Yeah. I just um, use that as an opportunity to draw Penny in here. Uh, so uh, Penny... When Fireside approached you to assist with this research-based kind of component of informing the narrative with um, with research, how how did you how did you respond to that brief? And I guess how did you how did you approach the task? 
Well, you know, um, the thing about Fireside is that it understands the power of a really great narrative because effectively what you want people to do is think or feel something different tomorrow than they did yesterday and and that when the narrative is spoken to them that is the trigger point for them to reframe their thinking so that means in order to write a really powerful narrative you have to understand what their current state is in order for it to change so whenever we start with a research project we're thinking about who is it that we need to speak to to understand what that current state is and Nina you know, referred to those, there were the two key, we call them cohorts, sort of research kind of groups of people um, that that potentially we needed to understand where their heads are at. One were people who were already in touch with or engaged with Oxfam and the other were people who are engaged with climate change but not necessarily engaged with Oxfam. So there's there's work that's done at the start for us to refine together as a team who the most important people are that we need to look for change from and, and why why did why just explain how why we decided to, to slice it those those ways yeah, and also along obviously along um age um levels as well yeah it's a great question yeah. right because we could do endless amounts of research but unfortunately everybody in the world has a budget and also when we go into research discussions we're keen to put people who will feel comfortable talking about their beliefs and attitudes in front of each other so you would never put someone who is a climate disbeliever against someone who is a climate agreer and expect that you're going to have a fulsome conversation that's going to help us understand their attitudes and perspectives that would help us write a really compelling narrative. So we put them into groups of like-minded people and and the people who we think might lead the debate or, or create the change. So it was interesting having the conversation about those two groups and it was everyone is bespoke because the idea of actually speaking to a group of people who are Oxfam engaged was easy because it's for Oxfam. So if anyone is going to change first, it's going to be the people who already love us and think like us. But there was also this question around not necessarily being known as a climate change organisation. So we said, well, there's probably another cohort out there of people who are climate engaged but don't really think of Oxfam in that space. And they're probably a powerful opportunity for us, but we would need to perhaps craft a slightly different narrative for them. Mm. So you're really thinking through the hypotheses of what you're going to find and who is it that you want to lead the change to identify them first and then understand how to talk to them. You're listening to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. Today, a conversation with Where To researchers Penny Burke and Oxfam Australia's Nina Crawley. I'm Chris Harrigan, editor of The Story, a digital magazine about the art and science of storytelling. Featuring some of the best writers from Australia and overseas, The Story deconstructs the narratives that shape the world around us and offers practical advice to help you tell your own story more effectively. Head to thestory.au or follow the link in our show notes to read articles by James Hennessy on the rise and potential threat of storytelling AI and comedian Patrick Mulborough on the subtle art of not embarrassing yourself on LinkedIn. Thestory.au. It's the home of storytelling about storytelling. Have you done work before where you've been doing the research to inform 
a narrative? Yeah, uh, quite a lot of it. I mean, um, everything is a narrative, right? Everyone needs a, you know, a really clear understanding of what the overarching message is that you want to be selling here. So even if, you know, all the psychology tells it, if you want people again to do something different tomorrow than they did yesterday you've got to give them the why mm. you know you can't just tell them what to do yes of course we know that sticks work we're going to fine you if you speed or you can't smoke out the front of this building mm. um so that that does work but actually the most sustainable change happens when people change because they want to and so that means them understanding the why so penny you've had a long career in doing this kind of research but maybe a lot of it more skewed towards the commercial side of things. You were responsible, not solely responsible, but somewhat responsible for the not happy Jan tagline in the in the nineties. Um, so, in terms of this job, I know that speaking to you before, you were, um, you know, expressing some feelings about that. It was a pretty kind of it's going to it did have some challenges in terms of, um, you know, really uh, um, unearthing a narrative out of a lot of complexity in the space. Um, so, yeah, ha- just describe to us how you kind of felt about the brief going into the focus groups. Absolutely. Well, you know, the reality is that the that the for-profit guys have the big benefit of a massive budget. So even if their narrative or what it is they want to say to their audience isn't compelling or engaging, they can kind of ram it through with expenditure you know i mean how often have we all seen do you want fries with that i mean it just becomes learned whether you want to or not but when you're working with not-for-profits or ngos or um, any of that sector it actually sharpens the need to get the narrative right because um, you don't have that budget so every post has to be a winner and certainly we were concerned I, i guess the benefit of being a researcher is that you come to every project the same way most of the time that a target market does. And in this case, uh, I would consider that I am climate engaged, but, you know, not at the pointiest of end. I'm also engaged with Oxfam, but again, as one of a group of people that I give to. And so my immediate thoughts of that was that I didn't understand what climate justice was, and I'm a like to think I'm relatively well educated and understand these things better than, um, you know, perhaps a number of people might. Um, but I didn't understand it. And uh, I, I'm probably exactly the target audience that it needs to speak to. So whilst we would never look at a survey of one and say that characterises the problems, we were certainly concerned that not everybody would be up for the ride that, um, that Nina spoke about. And so yeah, you were just you were concerned that basically that um, Oxfam might have radically overestimated the traction that it had that the, the whole concept had with 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 people. Well, we were concerned on two fronts. We were concerned that people wouldn't understand what climate justice was, would not find it compelling, would not see it as an easier thing to grapple with the the broader kind of conversation of of climate change more fully. Mm. And secondly, we were concerned that Oxfam wouldn't be seen as credible or or worthy of the people to put forth this debate on on something that's actually a brand new concept. So if anyone's going to bring you a brand new climate concept, would Oxfam be the believable ones to do that? And so let's jump into what actually happened in the focus groups. So, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of what, what we had four focus groups, what, what to your mind, what were the kind of, kind of key findings coming out of the, the groups? 
So in the four focus groups, we did also group by age so that we had people again. There's no point pairing an 18-year-old with a 60-year-old. They, they don't talk openly in front of each other all the time. So so I think what we, we did find was, was aligned, I guess, in some ways to um, some of our hypotheses. Certainly climate justice as a concept was difficult for people to get their head around. So across the groups, there was maybe one person in each of the four groups that had actually ever heard of the term. Um, and even as a label, when we asked people to take a stab at what they thought it meant, um, it didn't readily transcribe in their minds. And so I think Nina's sort of assertion of the, the inner circle and how many people understood it was really proven in the sense that it was 100,000, but in relative to 27 million or whatever we're up to, that it was very small. So that was certainly the first thing that was found is that people didn't understand it. Yeah, a lot of people frame climate justice around the justice term and you know as in the justice system law law courts and that yeah, kind of people thing doing the wrong thing yeah as opposed which obviously they are doing the wrong thing but <laughs> as opposed to sort of taking the climate end of it and i think that's because you know we often say with um with narratives really good narratives it's a bit like um knowing a song you know and you've got to teach consumers a new song and if you just teach them or sort of sing them the opening beats to a song they already know they kind of fill in the gaps for you right and so the problem with that, with climate, is that, you know, when you when you started to talk about climate and you gave them a few beats of the song, they go, yeah, I know that. And and you go, no, actually, this is a different song. Um, and you have to kind of, you know, teach them that different song. And so it, it takes a while for them because they don't unlearn the old song. They just have to add another one to the catalogue. And that takes time and money and, and cost. And then you've got to make sure that the person singing the song is a singer that they like. And so that's the Oxfam issue. And I guess that was the second thing which was really um, encouraging was that um, we were concerned about how many people would accept the debate from Oxfam and it probably speaks to um, the size and the strength and the reputation profile of Oxfam that people were very um, open to it. So there were a few who sort of went, mm, Oxfam, why would they be interested? But such is the credibility of the brand that it, um, it, it, it could stretch that way in terms of um, a social license to operate in that space as to whether or not um, you could effectively fundraise there there might be a few questions there but there was certainly no issue with Oxfam coming to the table to talk about mm. climate justice as a as an overarching idea yeah once once you got people to to the starting line in terms of the concept and you asked them well who would be the right people to engage with this there was kind of a pleasing number of mm. people who said, Oxfam got a, got one or two amnesties, but um, Oxfam seemed to be the main one. Yeah, yep. yeah. So, what what were the other key takeaways that came out of the focus groups for you, Nina? An overall feeling that I have, or the, the main takeaway, not about specific messages, was that we're really at the start of the conversation, and that we need to be patient and and graduate it. Um, I think. Yeah, the, the lack of clarity around the idea of climate justice came through very strongly. Another negative, I suppose. Not that that's completely negative, but something um, in a slightly different vein that I found really disheartening was how disengaged the young cohorts were. That was, um, that was a shock to me. I was expecting the young cohorts to be more interested in this issue, more readily able to engage, but what I saw were young people who saw huge problems and didn't even know where to start yeah. and didn't have trust in their leaders to do the right thing. 
on the positives and look, this should come as no surprise to anybody. The power of uh, a unifying message came through very strongly. Mm. Um, and we had been very focused on responsibility as the way to explain climate justice. Hey, Australia, one of the, uh, as a group of wealthy countries, we've done the wrong thing and we've been making a lot of money off coal. Mm. It's time to step up and take responsibility. People weren't so keen to hear. What they were really keen to hear is we're all doing it tough. Some people don't have the resources to recover and we need to help each other out. Um, and that was, that was heartening. Yeah. Uh, that, that was the, sort of the bright light that shone through to me as well was the kind of the, that sense of once you started talking about the story of us, the togetherness, that we're all in together, you know, the, the person who used the example of vaccines was a really powerful one in terms of us sharing vaccines with third world countries and that we're in, in, in the COVID context that we're all in this together and it didn't matter whether you're in Papua New Guinea or Australia or wherever, you still had a right to protect yourself. Yeah, but I, yeah, I like you was was pretty not shocked, but um, surprised at uh, the especially the young climate engaged cohort who let's not make this a kind of a pile on uh, <laughs> on young people, but um, in terms of climate, but it did seem like their knowledge and engagement in climate was kind of a mile wide and a and a an inch deep kind of thing, and um, you know that. The, the kind of the fact that you had people who don't clearly identified as being really into this issue and you know saying well but what does climate have to do with 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 poverty they, they seem to be very kind of action orientated in terms of the big issue is and this may be like not just young people but everybody to say that the, the issue is so big let me just focus on the things that i can do kind of thing they seem very focused on which is not surprising again cost of living stuff as well and they did see that in the context of you know the whole vibe to me seemed like it was like god we've got so much stuff to worry about at the moment and you're giving me one more thing that i hadn't even thought of before which is the poverty implications of climate change like really mm. <laughs> we yeah. often talk when we're talking about sentiment of people as well we're talking waves and tides so tides are the really big things, you know, that, that don't change that much. That's their people's values, you know, how they feel about family, how they feel about their, you know, the really meaningful things that make a difference. Um, and then waves are the things that might be kind of come in and out and are largely contextual. Now, when we did that research, you know, COVID was still very fresh and people were still coming to grips with a whole lot of other things that were happening in their lives and so when we're so when we're talking about sentiment or how people are feeling about things we're always wary to try and pull apart the waves and the tides because belief systems tend to be very much linked to tides mm. but there's always waves that are in the way um and, and i do think covid was was part of that and this a, a higher than average level of sensitivity towards oh my god this is another thing that you're telling me because we've just had a number of years of being told what to think, what not to think, what to do, what not to do. You can't do this, you can't do that. You know, and, and there's we've noticed across all of our cohorts and many of our research projects in the last 12 months or so, there's been this real sensitivity to do not tell me another thing that I'm supposed to be doing because I've had enough of it. And it almost doesn't matter what it is, mm -hmm. you know, even if it's something that's worthy. Mm -hmm. I've had enough, I need a break. It does seem like there's a broader kind of sentiment issue out there in the community at the moment out of COVID, which is like just away from kind of heaviness, away from dark stuff and towards like just 
just give me the light stuff at yep. the moment, which That's I think absolutely. maybe came through in those focus groups as well. The finger pointing thing I think is quite interesting as well. Like the the all the groups that I sat in on seemed there was a real sensitivity to any sense that we as Australians were being blamed for stuff happening in other countries. Like you can't blame us for what's happening in, you know, Tuvalu, don't point the finger in my chest kind of thing, um, even amongst climate engaged, which I thought was really interesting. People don't want to feel guilty, mm. I think, about it. Yeah. And some of that was quite defensive, um, I would say, and reactionary in a sense of feeling that personal attack. But some of it was quite nuanced and I would say reasonable. You know, there was one gentleman who called out the enormous tax breaks of fossil fuel companies and, and you know, he's sort of saying, well, hang on, it's not me. Like there are these, you know, fat cats who have been getting rich off this. I've just been going about my everyday life, you know, trying to do the best for my family, doing my thing. So I think we should always be cognizant of that as people in the climate space that really it's kind of not individual Australian, you know, it definitely is not individual Australians' fault. So any implication that that might be the case is wrong and will probably lead to defensiveness. And so, yeah, as I said before, one of the bright spots was the togetherness. What did you see any other real positives to come out of it in terms of getting the 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 good bits for the ensuing narrative, Penny? Yeah, sometimes, well, I said before that we like to separate ages because people don't necessarily talk the same language, but there's every now and then you come across a, a topic that is unifying irrespective of age and I think this was one of them so I think even though we had in the end quite a spread of age gender socioeconomic background etc whereas normally with research we split those things out to sort of maximize the opportunity of fertile conversation to happen um what I saw is a lot of engagement um you know across those traditional demographic mm-hmm. uh lenses and so that speaks to um you know a much better uh, opportunity for narrative as well because what it's saying to you is that you can you can pick a higher order need and if you phrase it properly it can unite everybody irrespective mm-hmm. of their demographic circumstance and that's something that lots of branded products would kill for <laughs> the opportunity to be able to strike a narrative that is compelling that that you know a lot of people from different backgrounds could sign up to yeah I mean, and, and- that was interesting, the fact that the age, we didn't, really didn't see that much difference between the two different age cohorts across both the climate engaged and the Oxfam engaged groups. Yeah, were, you, were you surprised about that? I probably wasn't hugely surprised because we have seen that before in work that we've done for climate change, that it is a much more, um, you know, it's a, it's a love and a sharing of the commonality. The reason we separate age is more that right from the start, it's a bit weird coming to a focus group, right? You know, you're there with sort of half a dozen other people. You've never met them before. And as you're sitting there looking around the room and there's a man or a woman or a non-binary person who looks older or different to you um, or, or younger or whatever it may well be, your, your starting premise in a in a conversation is that you'll just hang back a bit and see how this is going to go because <laughs> they don't look like my tribe. Mm. Um, so we separate out on those things because we've got a limited amount of time with them and we want to get them to the meaty stuff as soon as possible. So they need to feel comfortable um, and they need to feel like these people are my people. Um, but what was reassuring about it is that, yeah, the sort of people who are into this issue sort of traverse wide yeah. demographic bases. And we found that the um, the climate engaged were maybe a little bit less uh, prone to our messaging than the Oxfam engaged in the end. Is that that's yeah. fair to say? 
So the other thing we do from a research point of view is a screener. So when we were talking about climate engage or Oxfam engage, we come up with a questionnaire before people come to the groups, which which we need to define. So we normally ask them questions around how they feel about the environment or if they've ever taken any actions or whether or not in the case of how they were Oxfam engaged, we didn't want them just to sort of um, give to our trekking stuff. We wanted them to feel more engaged um, uh, in a range of different ways. So our definition of climate engaged was either not strict enough because when they came they were not as engaged as we would want them to be or it was perfect and there's just a lot more people whose version of climate engaged is actually quite shallow in comparison to their ability to understand granular concepts like climate justice. Mm. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that climate engaged group were very environmentally engaged and that was interesting to me. I think we um, silo things into, oh, I work on waste or I work on water management but I think for maybe a lay audience, it's all part of the same conversation. So we found a lot of the climate engaged people wanting to talk about waste and, and that was what really fired them up. Yeah. And I think that's, again, the, the stuff that's in their face every day. So there was a real war on packaging from memory in terms of the supermarket packaging and how much crap you've got to, you know, when you come home. And, I mean, and so that's stuff that's in your face every day and that's why recycling comes up because that also happens every week, every day. The concept of something like climate justice, which I've never heard of before, and my opportunity to interact with that mm. <laughs> on any given day of the week mm. or month of the year um, is remote. Mm -hmm. And and so, again, when we're looking for narratives that are going to engage people and activate them to do something different, it, it has to be something that is within their sphere of understanding. Mm -hmm. I think part of that too, Ben, I might something heartening I realised was that all the groups clearly understood the effects of climate change and I was pleased by that. We didn't get any pushback that it could cause a cyclone, it could cause a drought, it could, you know, and these are the realities of people around the world are facing. And so I think that Oxfam engaged group was more inclined to want to support those people because that was already part of their identity. So it was more that everybody was engaging at that point where I'm concerned about this person who's lived through a cyclone. They all felt concerned for that person and then maybe the Oxfam group was just more more concerned or more comfortable engaging in that kind of conversation. So before we go on to sort of the, the narrative that came out of the focus groups, might be just worth we did also do some testing around um, images and what images worked. What, what sort of jumps out at, from, um, at you, Penny, as the, kind of some of the findings from the image? Well, the, I mean, the first learning, which is no surprise, is that a picture tells a thousand words, right? And so that means that the picture is really important. We yeah. know that from the point of view of ability to cut through, ability to be recalled, ability to change or reframe people's attitudes and perspectives about things and also, more importantly, ability to link to a broader story. Yeah. So where there were some images that were indistinct, um, you couldn't quite tell what was happening. So, yeah, so just, just um, for people's um, understanding, we had a range of different images that portrayed people who had been impacted by climate change. We had a woman in Bang Bangladesh who was standing in waist-deep in water. We had a woman with a tiny potato, I think it was. We had some people building a seawall um, where their, their farmland had been inundated, a whole range of different um, images from Oxfam's image library. Yeah. And so it is important. What looks obvious to us from an image doesn't always uh, translate that way to audiences. It can even come down to the way that the picture is cropped or the look on her face. So that person doesn't 
you know, are, are they sad? Are they sad because they're waist deep in water or are they sad for some other reason? Those people who are looking to, to help and collect um, items, are they collecting food or are they collecting wood for a fire or are they collecting stuff that's floating by in the river for no good reason? Uh, it, so if it's, not, if it's not clear, what happens is people pick their own story um, and a lot often that can be wrong. So making sure that the visual is actually communicating what you think it is communicating and also that it's sympathetic to and adds to the story um, is is really critical because what appears logical to us, that, that was actually born out a few times with us all going, can you not see that that woman is holding a yam? And it made me realise that it's actually quite a hard thing to illustrate, yeah? Like if you've got a... Um to find simple imagery where people can immediately say, "Oh, that's an that's a victim of climate change," when you know that yeah, that's a big, big kind of thing. And standing knee deep in water doesn't necessarily say that you could just be standing in a in a river. You know, that was such a huge shock. I mean, this photo that you're talking about it was actually that you couldn't see her feet at all. So, in you know, and for some greater context, this is a woman, and people knew she lived in Bangladesh, and there had been a cyclone, so a country well known for flooding. And the questions were, well, she could just be next to a river if I can't see her feet. So I think I was shocked by the level of cynicism as well and just that, you know, which perhaps rightfully so, like we need to just work harder to make sure that we're being very transparent and clearly communicating what it is we want to tell them. Well, and again, uh, you know, they're singing the climate change song. They're not singing the climate justice one. So, you know, they were looking for some other kind of help in this visual around what this climate justice thing could be. Mm. And they were sort of seeing some tried and true visuals that they had perhaps seen the like of those before um, and and couldn't immediately see how that was different or what they were supposed to be looking for. Mm. So in terms of how how, um, how this came out, then Fireside, we went away and took the took the findings from the all the focus groups and um, did a. I think initially we thought we might be doing a couple of different narratives, but the the unity of the different groups um, showed that we could do one kind of master narrative, and that really looked at um, you know initially kind of. Uh, establishing and reinforcing Oxfam's credibility in this space. So sort of the why Oxfam kind of question and the years of um, great work in the development space and in developing countries um, to, to really remind people of that kind of credible um, uh, place in the, in the space, um, which came out in the focus groups. And then to me, the kind of the, the, um, the really powerful part of the narrative that we developed is the, the sort of the the us in this, which really tried to kind of draw some parallels in a sensitive way between events that might happen in different places and using the floods in Pakistan, for instance, just like, you know, in Lismore, the floods devastated people in Pakistan, but, you know, both caused death, both caused absolute heartbreak and devastation, but, um, you know, the effects in Pakistan were so much more because... Um, you know, when you lose a cow and lose more, it's bad. But if you lose a cow in Pakistan and it's a family's whole only asset, source of food, everything, that's a whole different story. And so kind of creating that sense of us but also drawing parallels to get people kind of to find empathy and commonality with, with the experience of people in, in other places I think is a, it was a really kind of key aspect to the narrative. And then just having a really, really strong couple of calls to action at the end 
um, and we decided to go with a kind of a um, a lend your voice call to action. So, um, uh, you know, write to your local MP, uh, share a social media post, um, which which did come out as something that the especially the younger people were were okay to do. <laughs> I think even the older cohorts were okay yeah. with the social media share. Yeah. yeah, everyone was okay with that. Yeah, and then um, and then the um, the other call to action was just around donations and how people's donations could mm. could help with with systems change. So, I mean, for us, it's yeah, it's the first time that we've ever done a research informed narrative, and it was um, really really eye opening and really kind of probably changed the way that I thought about climate communication as well. Probably a bit like you, Nina. I was kind of like a bit interested in how much engagement there was out there and how deep the kind of the knowledge was and how if we look at this in a in a city high income kind of bubble like we're all people who probably like a bit of complexity and have a lot of have a lot of kind of well believe we have a lot of knowledge about this stuff that that's not necessarily the the kind of the what's going on out in the world and people have a lot of stuff going on um in their lives and they're not all down at the pub talking about SDGs, you know. <laughs> they're not. Although, you know, in the Solomon Islands, they kind of are, which is what's interesting. They're not talking about SDGs, but they are talking about climate justice, perhaps in a different way. Yeah. So I think that's a bit of a challenge for us too, is to bring those voices here, because I think people talking pe- person to person is mm. really powerful. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's being translated through, you know, corporate speak through it through an inner city bubble and it's coming out inauthentic but i like the way that you framed it around sort of the start start of the conversation and we're we are kind of at the starting gate but which which is um probably a bit sobering but also there's lots of opportunity ahead in terms of how you can engage the the unengaged on on climate so if you were kind of talking to uh, any kind of group that deals with climate from this kind of perspective, not specifically specifically development, but just from a social justice kind of, um, you know, um, you know, be, beyond kind of emissions reduction kind of thing, and um, you were, they said, you know, what are the, what are the what are the top things that we should we should sort of remember when we're talking about climate to the to sort of um, broader populations? What what? Were the sort of the key insights? What would you yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, there'd be a couple. The first one would be really make sure you do work out who your target audience is. So even though we said, um, you know, there were a, a, a lot of unifying factors, you really have to get the attitudinal perspective clear in your mind. Do they already know and you're just trying to tip them a bit further? Do they know nothing and you need to educate them? How do they feel about this in relative to other issues in their lives? So you, you really need to be clear not just on who they are demographically, but where they're at on the, the journey that you're wanting to take them on. Then you need to work out, secondly, uh, how can you get onto the shopping list? Because I think we, we did realise there was a shopping list of things that they're thinking about. And climate change is on that list, but climate justice is not. And so, you know, a, a bit like the song analogy, the list doesn't get longer. That's what they were saying. They're overwhelmed. They don't want to keep putting things on the list, right? So we've got to knock something else off the list to get this one on there. So that leads to the third thing, which is about have a really clear and compelling narrative, right? Because it's you're not going to make it on the list if you don't have that right. So um, obviously we would say the power of, of research in helping frame that and, and, and then the skill in making a narrative compelling is absolutely critical because if you think you can just do it yourself, um, 
you probably are going to end up in a space that's not going to be helpful. And then the fourth thing would be um, be patient because I think even as you've said, Nina, if you, you think right at the start, you said look at how far the climate change debate has come in the decade. Well, that's still off the back of decades where it, it didn't fly and, and it took um, greater research, it took you know a greater level of insight and working out how to, to frame narrative in a way that actually is compelling to change. And so this is just a sub-segment of that. And so I, I would hope that we haven't got decades and decades ahead of us for the climate justice narrative. But I, I think it's likely when you when you look at how much in its infancy climate justice is as an issue on that shopping list that it's going to take some time. So, you know, we're, we're going to have to be patient and get on with it as quickly and as ferociously as we can. But good to have that, the kind of the challenge framed in a really immediate way like this, yeah? Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it would be remiss of me not to point out that there are communities for which climate justice is very well understood and, you know, something that they've been calling for for some time. So I'm thinking of, you know, Indigenous climate movements and, and feminist movements across the world. So there's, you know, uh, we're standing on the shoulder of giants as, um, you know, more folk like me come to the space and hopefully, you know, more people across the Australian community start to realise this is a really important issue. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. This has been the final episode of Storycraft's second season. We'll be back with new episodes in 2023. Storycraft is brought to you by me, Ben Hart, and produced by Fireside Studios. It's made possible with the support of Fireside, a communications agency that helps you amplify your positive impact with powerful storytelling. Tell your friends and colleagues if you enjoy the show, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love it if you could rate and review the show to help more people find us.